1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, It's a, it's a t-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. Good morning, Jim. Another packed agenda for The Other Hand podcast today. As usual, I suspect we won't get through it all. But in no particular order of importance, I know that we want to talk about the interest rate outlook, which in certain respects this week changed rather dramatically, um, certainly in the United States, and I think with lots of implications for Europe. And I think the interest rate market for Europe is changing as well. We've got Imminently, if not actually announced, an EU nine point plan to encourage all of us to save energy. You, I know, want to talk about some stats this week that were released on debt and borrowing for Ireland. There's an important article in the Irish Times today, written by the ex central bank governor Patrick Honahan, on what the government can and can't do about inflation. And if we get time, there's a few aspects of the Ukraine war. That I would love to discuss with you, but only if we have time. So let's start with the interest rate outlook. One of the things that happened this week is that the chairman of the Federal Reserve, the US Central Bank, told us that interest rate rises are going to be on the aggressive side. That has led some people to speculate that not only is a half point rise, 50 basis points in the jargon, likely. At the next meeting but at the next two or three meetings and also that it is perfectly possible now there is open speculation that it could be three quarters of a point 75 basis points and that has affected the bond market it and is therefore affected everything it was a spectacularly bad end to the week for what wasn't a good week anyway for equity markets globally, but the U.S. equity market in particular had a terrible Friday, one of the biggest one-day falls that we've seen for a little while now. Uh, At the very least, there's a lot of volatility in stock markets with, um, I think, a downward trend very evident now. And um, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on that. Um, My own perspective has been for quite some time that I've been surprised I've said that on this podcast and I've said it in writing actually in one of the pieces I wrote relatively recently that I'm surprised that the stock market has held in uh, such as it is in the way that it has that it hasn't gone down further and harder given the news flow and it's the both the economic and the political news flow that worries me worries all of us Uh, the inflation growth outlook um, is very poor very poor indeed. We've seen that this week. We talked about it on the last podcast, the way in which the IMF and the World Bank, like all other forecasters, are falling over themselves to downgrade their global growth forecasts. Um, They're not forecasting a global recession yet, but I don't think that those sorts of forecasts can be too far away. Uh, Notwithstanding the speculation that US inflation might have peaked, there's a lot of worries that it hasn't and that inflation is becoming embedded Hence, the talk about interest rate rises, um, they need to be more aggressive. The front page of The Economist this week had an interesting picture of uh, the the, um, the the Federal Reserve um, criticizing the Federal Reserve uh, for getting it so wrong. There have been similar comments made about the Bank of England and um, uh, <laughs> an ex-chief economist <laughs> Uh, of the European Central Bank has been making similar points about the ECB. There's now an awful lot of, I think, um, backseat driving or rear mirror driving um, criticism of central banks saying that they've lost the plot, that that they have made serious mistakes. Uh, I actually disagree. I'd be very interested in your perspective on this. I think this is an awful lot of hindsight trading um, because I think that people are essentially saying that we should central banks should have anticipated the inflationary consequences of the Ukrainian war and done something about it almost before the war started. So I I think that the criticism is a little harsh and I think we need to ask these people, well, what would you have done? Would you have been jacking up interest rates all through the course of last year as we were emerging from the pandemic, for example? So your, your thoughts on that would be appreciated, but it's been a tough week for financial markets, hasn't it, Jim?
0: Yeah, it has, Chris. It's been an amazing week. Um, I guess it's been dominated by the spring meeting of the IMF in Washington. Um, we had the specter of a number of um, global financial leaders walking out um, as the Russian delegation was speaking at the G20 meeting. So that that's extraordinary stuff. Um, as you say, equity markets have become incredibly nervous and volatile again. Uh, there is an, an index of volatility Um, relating to the S&P 500 in the States called the VIX Volatility Index, uh, which is basically a fear gauge. And um, it increased to a one-month high of 28.3 yesterday. So that is a clear demonstration of just how nervous markets are at the moment. And um, as you say, uh, Jay Powell's comments about a half percent interest rate increase very much on the table Uh, But he also said that it is appropriate to move a little more quickly at this stage. So that clearly has created nervousness. Um, The 10-year bond yield over 2.9%, the highest since 2018. And um, we had the ECB vice president, Louis de Grandes, saying that the ECB's stance from here on would be obviously dependent on data Uh, but that the first ECB rate rise in more than a decade was possible from July onwards. So clearly, there's a lot of stuff happening on the inflation and interest rate front that is, of course, feeding into significant financial market weakness and volatility. And, um, you know, it it is kind of funny that um, all of these warnings about higher interest rates and inflation are coming against the backdrop of the significant weakening in the global economy um, that you mentioned there with the IMF and the World Bank for example this week both revising down their growth forecast significantly so it's 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 a pretty um dirty nasty environment out there there's no doubt about that um in relation to the criticism of the federal reserve um I wouldn't agree with that criticism. Um, I, I think it is another case of hindsight trading because um, you know what has happened over the last two years has been absolutely phenomenal, obviously, since uh, the global pandemic started in March 2020. Um, and we saw late last year, early this year, the significant distortions that was creating in many, many different areas, supply chains, um, inflation pressures, etc. cetera. Uh, but the, the view at that stage was that, you know, as we return to normality, as supply chains started to free up again, that things would start to normalize. So I think central bankers were, um, I think, correctly saying that let's wait and see what happens um, and then, of course, in February, we saw the Ukraine situation um, evolve. We've seen absolutely catastrophic um, developments at a human level, but we've also seen, you know, huge, huge problems for global supply chains, for food prices, et cetera, et cetera. So um, th- th- the world has changed dramatically over the last couple of months. And I think to turn around and criticise the central bank for being behind the game and for making mistakes is, uh, it just isn't appropriate. Um, It's, you know, it is really easy to say all of these things with the benefit of hindsight, but unfortunately um, we don't have the benefit of foresight. So, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I think it's kind of typical. It's what you'd expect, uh, but I, but I think it is a strange stance Um, that the, and if you look around the world, you know, that, that, what we describe so far has is a pretty depressing vista on many fronts. But there's a lot of other stuff happening that is equally depressing. So, for example, um, you know, sterling has weakened over the last couple of days. Largely, OK, there was weak retail sales data, but also um, a story in the Financial Times that the UK government is preparing legislation that would enable Boris to tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol which would effectively kill the Brexit trade deal. So that's creating a lot of um, nervousness around the UK, justifiably. Uh, We have on the food price front, and I I spoke, I think, in the last podcast about some of the pressures building on food price inflation. And I noticed yesterday that Indonesia, which accounts for over half of global um, supply of palm oil, has banned exports of palm oil and that the justification is that it is to ensure that palm oil remains in abundant supply in Indonesia and affordable. So this is another sort of nail in the coffin of globalization. You know, we've spoken about um, how the Ukraine war is going to fundamentally change the globalization model that has dominated over the last three or four decades um, I think this is another example of that, but it also, apart from what it says about the attitude towards free trade, I think it also, you know, shows that there's a lot of protectionism out there when you scratch the surface, and it also shows you that um, the outlook for food price inflation is is does not look great. Um, I, I think I alluded in the last podcast there was a story about rice production. I, I mean, I didn't realize that half of humankind um, lives on rice, um, but that because of the Ukrainian-driven sharp increase in fertilizer prices that the producers of rice are cutting back dramatically on the use of fertilizer, which means that the yield from that crop is going to fall dramatically. So there's another element of a food price and a food supply crisis uh, potential over the next 12 months.
1: Yeah, the cliche is that uh, Ukraine is the breadbasket of the world. It's also the source of an awful lot of cooking oil, uh, a bit like Indonesia, but a different type of cooking oil, sunflower oil. They grow a lot of sunflowers in Ukraine, or at least they did. And yesterday and today, uh, three big supermarket chains in the UK have started to ration the sale of cooking oil, not just sunflower oil, but all cooking oils, Tesco, Waitrose and Morrison. Uh, probably three names familiar to our irish listeners um uh, as as well as our more international listeners and you can either depending on the supermarket concerned either buy two or three bottles max of that and the prices of these oils of course have gone up a lot in in recent weeks so i fear that this is a sign of things to come if the uk is rationing basic foodstuffs because these oils they're not just used for cooking at, at home they feed an awful lot of uh, food processing manufacturing uh, industries, so everything from crisps to an awful lot of pre prepared foods that are then sold on use these oils so that's going, you know if there are shortages, if there are price hikes, that has obvious implications for a whole range of foodstuffs, not just the oils themselves to that end, Jim, I know that um, uh, in the Irish Times today there is an article by the ex governor of the Irish Central bank. Professor Patrick Honaghan, about what governments and particularly the Irish government can do to uh, help people with this kind of inflation problem that we have. What did you think of it?
0: Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. And, and before I get into it, um, I think to set the context for what Patrick Honaghan is talking about, um, he looks at the options that governments could utilise to help people deal with surging energy prices particularly okay before i get into that i think that the backdrop for that is that earlier this week the central statistics office published up-to-date data on the government finances in ireland so last year the general government deficit that's how much the government borrowed to run the country um, was 8.1 billion that's 1.9 percent of gdp down dramatically from 19.1 billion the previous year, which I guess was the, you know, the low point um, of the COVID restriction situation. Um, it shows that expenditure on COVID-related measures um, has had a huge impact on the public finance over the last couple of years. Last year, the government spent 14.7 billion specifically on COVID-related measures. You know those are income supports, the pandemic unemployment payment, business supports, etc. And that fourteen point seven billion is down from seventeen billion the previous year. So really, what you're looking at is that over a two year period, um, over thirty one billion has been spent on COVID related measures. Um, so that's just an indication of the the impact it's had. Um, our government debt at the end of 2021. Was at 235.9 billion, okay, up from 217.9 billion um, the previous year. Um, That is equivalent to 56% of GDP, which is one of the lowest in the European Union. I think probably Luxembourg is the only country lower than that uh, the last time I checked. Um, So, measured as a percentage of GDP, our debt situation looks very, very manageable. Uh, But unfortunately, as we've often spoken about in an Irish context, you need to measure stuff like debt as a percentage of modified um, GDP. In other words, gross national income star, which strips out stuff like aircraft leasing, intellectual property asset transfers, and so on, uh, which significantly inflate the measure of GDP. So if you strip all of that stuff out, debt as a percentage of GNI star, um, they didn't state in this report, but my understanding is that it's somewhere just over 100%. So Ireland does have a huge debt overhang um, that has been significantly exacerbated by COVID-19. So that then feeds down into what Patrick Honahan was talking about in the Irish Times this morning. Um, he's looking at the cost of living crisis and how government might respond and he he basically outlines three ways um, that are touted for how government can help. One is through income transfers. And of course, we've seen examples of that with the 200 euro credit on electricity bills here, for example, that the government announced before Christmas that I believe are just appearing in the bills at the moment. Um, I was very critical of that measure at the time and I remain critical of it because um, it, was a, it was a universal payment. So everybody got it regardless of your level of income. So I think it was a gross waste of money and it was an expensive measure. The second way of dealing with this is through cuts in indirect taxes on fuel. And we've seen an element of that with excise duties. Um, but he's, he's critical of that because it does reduce the incentive for people to Actually, trying to move towards alternative forms of energy, um, which is something we'll ultimately have to do anyway. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I'd be as critical as Patrick Honahan about this particular measure because, um, you know, I think when you see the Ukrainian crisis, the impact it's had on energy prices, um, I, I think it's essential, you know, as a temporary measure, government does whatever it has to do to try and get the price down because. Um, fuel is obviously still important despite how much we might dislike it the third way then is true um, increasing public sector pay and uh, we had the teachers conferences here in ireland the week uh, traditionally the week after easter and um, a key factor or, or, or a key theme that dominated those teachers conferences this year and i would totally sympathize with the teachers uh, the cost of living crisis you know they are finding it incredibly difficult to make ends meet etc um but you know it's it's not unique to teachers so increasing public sector pay will obviously help public sector workers but it will not help the rest so so anyway he goes through those three alternatives and he, and and I guess the one he comes down on is that you know income transfers through the social welfare system is the best way to help those that need most help. But then he poses the question, um, you know, this has to be paid for. So how do you pay for it? Do you increase income tax on those who can afford it? Which is, I think, basically what he is suggesting. Or the other option is to borrow. And um, we've seen, you know, Irish 10-year borrowing costs this week hit um, 1.57%. Okay, that might sound low in historical context. But if you think last September... The Irish government was able to borrow for ten years at negative point one three percent. So the the, the the point is that we have a huge level of debt overhang here at a state level, and um, if the government is going to spend money on, you know, helping people, uh, we have to pay for it somehow. That's that's the problem. And can I uh, just say
1: something there, Jim? Because yeah. one of, one of the things that strikes me about um, income transfers to people who can't afford these high energy prices, is that that makes an uh, abundant sense, I I would say that. And I I would approve of measures um, designed to do that. But the issue is one of uh, a question that arises in my mind then, but for how long? Because it, it then comes down to saying, well, surely the extent to which we can help people or indeed should help people depends on how long this energy price hike is going to last what if it's permanent? What if these high energy prices that we have now um, are going to stay around forever? What if if they get worse? Um, We certainly can't borrow forever to do that. And so the choice then is if you decide that these high energy prices are permanent, the only choice is to raise taxes because you can't borrow forever. You can do it in the short term, but you can't do it in the long term. You can't borrow forever to help people with their energy bills. I think that, that's a, a, a pretty fundamental point. And yet at some point, there's going to be a very tough decision related to time and how long these energy prices are likely to last. Um, at the end of the day, high energy prices are deemed to be the solution to, or part of the solution, to the environmental crisis, of course, because the whole point of carbon taxes, which we economists at least and environmentalists have been yelling for for, for years, increase carbon taxes is to put the price of energy up such that substitution into non-fossil fuels cheaper fuels is thereby encouraged so so this 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 is a tough one i think and um it and of course nobody knows whether these energy price rises are permanent or not but i do think we need to start thinking about what we're going to do if they are with us forever
0: Horahan also laments the fact that despite all of this borrowing uh, we've engaged in over the last couple of years uh, that none of it has gone towards infrastructural investment so basically um he would argue we've well I think he is arguing that we've very little to show for all of the spending that has um taken place but I I I kind of disagree with that in the sense because you know it was necessary for government to support households and businesses during the period of intense restrictions as a result of COVID-19. I don't think there was any choice. And of course, that money, you know, remained within the economy, turned around the economy, Some of it went into savings. Ultimately, those savings will end up being spent in the economy. So I, I don't believe there was any choice um, other than to spend that sort of money in the circumstances. Uh, the other point, I, I guess, is that, and I know you want to talk about this in a new context, uh, but if 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 you are correct and if that there's a possibility that we could be um in for a sort of a period of permanent high energy prices um that definitely should and we've said this before, but it definitely should accelerate the move towards alternative energy and um I know every source of alternative energy you speak about has its downsides um you know electric vehicles uh they certainly are are not that good for the environment if you consider the mining that takes place to make the component or for the components of the electric batteries um you look at wind farms and the uh, the carbon footprint of actually manufacturing the wind vanes themselves there's all there's all sorts of issues but there there is no pain free solution here uh but I do think um on balance there has to be a move away from Fossil fuels towards alternative energy.
1: Absolutely, and um, yes, there are env- there are environmental trade offs with every single choice that we make. There are trade offs with every choice that we make. Part of our infantile politics that we have around the world today is the the promise made by particularly populist politicians in every country, including Ireland, that there are um, decisions that can be made that don't involve trade offs and uh, r- r- real politics is in in real life is harder than than the infantile discussion that that we often experience would suggest and that the, the, the trade off that i think is most important at the moment is that every time we switch something off with respect to energy consumption switch a light off switch a phone charger off that's a few pennies not going to putin ultimately and i think that's the thing that people need to focus on at the moment and the reason why we all need to make sacrifices when it comes to energy consumption at the moment in reducing it is, yes, for the environment, um, with all of the trade offs that go with the alternatives to which we're switching. But whatever it is that we're doing at the moment, uh, every decision we make must, I think, at the front and centre of that decision be, you know, that's a, that's a cent less to Putin. Because even if we're, even if our energy sources in the UK are from the North Sea, and I know in Ireland you don't buy it much, if anything, from Russia. Ultimately, any decision to reduce energy reduces somebody's need in the energy chain, in the energy supply chain, to import from Russia. And that's the thing that has to stop.
0: Yeah, I, I, I noticed, Chris, that down in my parish in Waterford, um, there that there's a proposal for a 500-acre solar farm. Okay, so it's, it's pretty huge. Um, but I was told, I haven't been down there in Yongs, but I was told... Uh, during the week, that um, it, the, the, this issue is so divisive that it is going to generate um, the, the the biggest social problems since the civil war back in 1921-22 within the parish. Apparently, it's gone absolutely toxic now uh, between the supporters and the opponents. Uh, and that, I can understand,
1: that... I can understand some of the objections. I don't agree with them. I can understand some of the objections to wind farms because. Some people think that they are unsightly. I disagree. I think they're quite pretty, actually. Um, modern windmills sort of thing. And the other thing about them is the damage they cause to birds and the noise that they make. And I can understand all of those objections. I don't necessarily agree with them. But why would you object to a solar farm? What nuisance does that cause?
0: Yeah, I, I have actually no idea. Uh, I, I, I know very little about the project. Didn't know anything about it actually it was a couple of weeks ago. But um, as I say, apparently it's causing absolute turmoil in the local community. And that is indicative of uh, the challenge on the ground of pushing the alternative energy agenda. But uh, you want to talk about the EU's 10 point, nine point plan.
1: Yeah, the, the EU this weekend um, are releasing or have released a nine point plan encouraging us to do that thing that I was talking about just there, which is to reduce our energy usage. And it's the list of usual things that I think wouldn't surprise anybody, which is that we must uh, walk more and drive less. Uh, If we are driving, we should reduce the the speed with which we drive, because we all know that there's an optimum speed, which is lower than most motorway driving, at least. Um, I remember in the 1970s, the US reduced its uh, highway speed limits to 55 miles an hour in order to conserve fuel during the, the energy crisis of the 1970s, and it, to an extent, it worked. Uh, fuel consumption by cars uh, was much lower than it would otherwise have been during during that period. And even when the fuel crisis was over, you might recall, Jim, the US kept its 55-mile-an-hour limit for quite, quite some time, and it took, took, took them ages to, to restore it. Maybe it's time to think about things like that. I don't think the EU are suggesting we need to start showering with each other, but they're certainly encouraging us to uh, adopt alternative sources of energy, uh, to install heat pumps. I do think the time is coming when you know most of our houses within a relatively short period of time are going to be covered with solar panels. A big flat battery is going to be on the side of our house to store the energy when it's being created by the solar panels that we don't need. And we're all going to have connectors to the national grid that, that we can put electricity into it rather than take from it so we can actually make some money out of it. Those days, are still a way away, but um, they are they are coming. So um, the question about the EU thing is, of course, that it re- relates to, it's encouraging us to uh, reduce our energy consumption because they're very worried about what's going to happen next winter because there are a couple of possibilities that, 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 that focus their attention, which is that first, there is this large battle cry for Germany to stop importing uh, Russian oil and gas, Germany in particular, but the EU in general. And various people have tried to calculate the costs of that. The Bundesbank has been the latest to enter that particular debate with estimates for what it would cost the German economy far in excess of anything that any academic economist has published in recent weeks. It's orders of magnitude bigger. So, you, you know, depending on whose estimate you take depends on, uh, determines how worried you are about what it would mean for Germany. It certainly would mean a German recession. And the issue is the debate amongst economists. The Bundesbank is at the leading edge of saying it would be a, a big recession. And others are saying it wouldn't be that much bigger, if at all bigger than the one that was caused by the pandemic, which we did manage to handle reasonably well. So there, it, so the EU is clearly concerned that recession is coming because of uh, the lack of availability or the restriction of, of supply of Russian oil and gas to Europe, either because Europe decides not to take it anymore or on any given morning, we might wake up and Putin has switched it off as a, as, as another tactic in, in his war in Ukraine and his battles with, with the rest of us. So um, I think it's it's a good thing that they are encouraging people to use less. Uh, I worry it won't have much of an effect because it, it it's all carrot and no stick. I think the stick has to be that um, governments are going to have to consider things like reducing speed limits uh, for cars and having cities that are car-free on Sundays, measures like that. The libertarians amongst us will hate that, of course, but I think that if we are to avoid things like power cuts next winter, um, they're by no means certain at the moment, but they are a definite possibility. Uh, We talked about rationing of cooking oil, but there are other types of oil that could be rationed sooner than we think. I know some industry experts think that there is going to be a shortage of diesel, potentially. For example, because of the Ukraine war and the way in which that particular supply chain works, so yeah, it's it, it's it's very worrying, and I think the EU are right to be encouraging us, but I think governments should now think about compelling us.
0: Yeah, I I, I absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, the issue is going to have to be addressed. Uh, the Bundesbank's prognostications on the German economy in the event of a uh, cutting off of Russian gas five percent off GDP. Uh, That's a pretty dramatic economic shock by any stretch. Yeah, it's
1: about twice the estimates that I've seen from respected academic economists performing exactly the same calculations, but coming up with similar conclusions. I think we conclude that nobody really knows. We know it will be bad. And the only only way to find out how bad is to actually do it. And I still think that it's the right thing to do, because I think the idea that you are funding Putin's war effort uh, doesn't stand scrutiny of any kind, in my view.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely agree totally Um, and and I also agree that we are going to have to make hard decisions about uh, reducing energy dependency, there's there's no doubt about that and some of the things you're suggesting uh, as you say, they would not go down well with libertarians but um, you know so what, shit happens I mean we've we've got to deal with these problems. You have a pretty um, bleak um take on the Ukrainian war situation at the moment if it could well, guess- i don't want to, I
1: don't want to conclude you the podcast on too negative a note, Jim, but one of the things that I have picked up about the Ukraine war is a couple of uh, respected commentators, uh, supposedly with close links to intelligence services and ministries of defense and pentagons around the world, um have asserted that the CIA in particular, but intelligence agencies generally are getting nervous that Putin is getting to the point where he is going possibly to use tactical nukes in Ukraine. I don't know. I, of course, sincerely hope not. But it certainly is something that um, terrifies me, that prospect. And there is a fantastic article written by somebody I've mentioned in different contexts on this podcast on a couple of occasions, a professor of economics in the States uh, called Tyler Cohen who has written a long-form article on Bloomberg this week about deterrence and the way in which we're going to have to rethink it. And it was a much more eloquent, much more detailed exposition of a thought that I expressed in a written piece a few weeks ago in which I also said that we're going to have to rethink deterrence for all sorts of reasons, not least this point about using threats. Uh, Putin has, has, has used the threat of nuclear weapons use in in a way that's never been done before. It sort of um, really puts mutually assured destruction, which has been the whole post-World War II feature aspect, um, core of deterrence out the window. And a number of things flow from that. One is that if you simply uh, retreat or declare a red line that you don't actually honour when it's crossed, then um, using these threats becomes an everyday occurrence and um what you so the question arises what would nato do if uh if putin uh decided to use a tactical nuke on the azov steelworks in mariupol for instance and if his calculation is that nato would do nothing then i think this is gives rise to the fear that he's going to use it because i think the conclusion a lot of people have is that nato would do nothing in in, in uh, tweak sanctions a bit but it isn't the red line that it, that it suggests. So so that strategic, game-theoretic way of, of thinking about these things is is worrying. Um, the, the Azov Steelworks is, is, is really interesting because the, um, the way it's been described in various articles this week has been in the context of things like um, Remember the Alamo and other famous last stands, uh, Thermopylae, when 300 Spartans defended Against King Xerxes of Persia and bought time for the Greeks to re equip, re, re establish their defense lines. And the Greeks, although the 300 were wiped out, the Greeks subsequently, the following year, won the war. And people drawing comparisons between what's happening in Mariupol, in that steelworks, that it's tying down a huge part of the Russian war effort in order to allow the Ukrainians to take on the Russians elsewhere. And this goes back to that point about tactical news, is that if Putin starts to fail in his Donbass, sense, Donbass, Donbass offensive, what's he going to do? And that, that worries me um, a lot. Um, and so that's, that's a very bleak note. Hopefully, that's a worry that will not come to pass. But I, as I said, right at the top of this podcast, if you combine all of the economic news flow, plus this Uh, rather worrying strand of military strategic thinking. Um, I'm surprised that stock markets haven't gone down even harder, to be honest. Can you imagine what stock markets would do, what we would all do, how we would all feel, how we would all behave if Putin is cornered and lashes out in one way or another that is just too ghastly almost to contemplate?
0: Yeah, the source of hope here, Chris, is that the video footage of Putin this week uh, would suggest that he's not a well man
1: well it was really interesting to see him did you notice the way in which he was gripping the table gripping the
0: table absolutely yeah Without, it was, it,
1: he, he looked it was a it looked it was very weird body language yeah somebody extremely. somebody somebody that had something wrong with him either psychologically or physically it it certainly didn't come across as a calm measured well human being absolutely i agree so uh, um yeah well. uh so th- this is going to run and run. And unfortunately, yeah. it could run on a long way. Boris Johnson, I don't pay too much attention to what he says, but he said this week that he thinks the war could run well into next year. Um, all we can say is that we hope sincerely that he's wrong. Um, but there we are, Jim. Is there anything else optimistic that we could... We could we don't want to end this on too bleak a note. Um, uh, right,
0: right, right, Chris. Um, I'm off this afternoon to Limerick uh, to see Warford play Limerick in the Munster Hurling Championship. So hopefully that'll give me some sense of um, optimism as I travel back late tonight. I doubt a it. A sense of perspective. Here goes. I, I went to,
1: I went to a, an absolutely fantastic concert last night. It was a bit startling because I think I was the youngest person there, but it was a, a fantastic blues guitarist called um, Joe Bonamassa, And I would thoroughly recommend in these difficult times music as a source of comfort um, for me anyway. And I think for a lot of people surviving tactics for surviving in difficult times, I think, is something that we're going to have to talk about a wee bit more going forward and listening to fantastic music, particularly live music after we've all been shut away for a couple of years because of the pandemic. For me, anyway, is a great source of solace and, and incredibly uplifting. Actually, music is 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 a real source of comfort at all times, but particularly in difficult times.
0: I have a never-ending diet of Bob Dylan.
1: Well, that for me is a bit like GAA, Jim. It's a, it's it's uh, something <laughs> it's like I just, I've tried. I've tried with both GAA and Bob Dylan, and I still don't get either.
0: Good God. to next time. Uh, perhaps cheers Jim bye you have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand we hope you enjoyed it if you did please sign up to our Substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com you can download our podcasts on Apple Spotify and other good podcast platforms